0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. This podcast is a production of the Department of ob at the University of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City and it's sponsored by the Academy of Teaching Scholars at our university. Today my guest is Dr. Dina O'Leary. Dr. O'Leary is an assistant professor in our department in the Division of Urogynecology. Welcome Dina. Hello, thanks for having me today. Excellent. Well Dr. O'Leary, today I'd like to get your expert opinion on a topic um, of interest to me and of our residents and that's urinary incontinence. The longer I practice, the more I notice that my patients often have this problem, but they don't really bring it up until I ask. Does that seem strange to you, or
1: is this normal? Not at all. It's very normal. Urinary incontinence, like many of the pelvic floor disorders, are really still very much taboo in our society today. I think less so with all the commercials and recognition, but what we find in our clinic is the majority of women, even coming in, are very hesitant to bring it up, even though it is a
0: very common problem. Okay. And most women I see describe what I would call as stress incontinence. That is they leak urine when they cough or sneeze or jump mm-hmm. on their trampoline, you know, things like that. Um how accurate is that just me taking that history and making that diagnosis? Um or is there a special way that I should take their history? Um the the history for stress incontinence can be very much
1: accurate. Patients are usually very aware of their actual symptoms and what makes them leak because they've typically developed behaviors to avoid that by the time they come to a physician. Patients, um, there's different kinds of incontinence. As you mentioned, there's stress incontinence, but there's also urge incontinence. And sometimes ladies come in with a mixed picture. So you really need to distinguish between the two types of symptoms. Um, Some of the most important questions to ask are, are they prone to things like urinary tract infections? Do they have diabetes? Are they smokers? Um, Do they do a lot of heavy lifting? What does their work involve? Things like that. Um, Different characteristics of the leak. How much do they leak? Very important is how much does it bother them? Because even if they leak, it doesn't mean you're going to do anything if it doesn't bother them. Because like any other pelvic floor disorders all about quality of life and trying to enhance their quality of life so that is very important to ask as well
0: good that's really helpful yeah okay so i see someone i ask these really important questions that you talked about Um, i take their history and they say yeah this is bothersome to me i want to i want to do something about them is that something that I can treat in my office? Do I send them for physical therapy? Is it time to go see Dr. O'Leary? How do I decide what to do? Right. So if you're thinking they need any sort of procedural intervention, it's
1: a good idea to send them to a specialist if you're not um, comfortable doing surgery on themselves. If it's just a matter of education, behavioral training, helping them avoid triggers for their incontinence, sending them to physical therapy, you can actually absolutely... Manage that initial therapy yourself, um, and I don't really think you need a specialist to do that. You just need to have the time to spend with them to educate them on how to do that.
0: Okay. Should everyone try physical therapy or behavioral therapy first, or is it sort of the patient gets to choose if they want, you know, these interventions or want to go straight to surgery? Sure. I'm.
1: I personally am a fan of conservative treatment first with the knowledge that it doesn't work for everyone. Not all patients are good candidates for physical therapy for a variety of reasons. They may have a number of comorbidities that prevent them from being able to do the exercises on their home. They may have busy lives that they, you know, if they have five kids, they're not necessarily going to be able to carve out time to do the exercises here in Oklahoma, you have difficulty finding physical therapists within commuting distance for these patients. So they live somewhere seeing the panhandle. It may just not be realistic for them to come to physical therapy. But if you can even encourage them to visit at least once and get an idea of the exercises, then even that is better than nothing.
0: Great, that's super helpful to know, kind of set the patient up and say, here's what physical therapy is about, would you be interested, things like that. So thank you. Okay, let's say my patient is interested in surgical management, right? Um, And all they know about is what they see on TV, right? Mesh is bad, or you're supposed to do this or that. Tell me about what is the workup for surgical management, and then how how most just simple stress incontinence is managed, if that's um, something that you can answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not complicated, but it's also not necessarily
1: straightforward depending on the patient. Um, As far as a workup, if I'm considering any intervention, I really need to demonstrate that they do leak with some kind of activity, cough, sneeze, something. So on my initial exam on the patient, I typically get a post residual to make sure they're emptying their bladder and that's not the problem. I have them cough and bear down to see if they leak. If they leak easily with even a low volume bladder, then I don't necessarily do another workup, even if I'm considering surgery. Um, if they don't, however, then you should move to other things such as simple systemetrics or dynamics, depending on the situation and um, kind of what other things you're concerned about
0: okay so basically i'm gonna have my patient empty their bladder in the bathroom Mm -hmm. come in the room get undressed i'm gonna do a a femcath and say how much volume is left Mm -hmm. um and then i'm gonna have them bear down cough do whatever in the office and see if i can see that urine come out and when you talk about like simple cystometrics. Um, is that something that you can describe for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, basically, what you do is you have them into your
1: bladder. So you start with an empty bladder. You place a catheter, typically red rubber, because you need a catheter dip syringe to backfill their bladder. Take sterile water, insert it into the bladder. Let it go fairly slowly because you don't want to the bladder to spasm and then empty just because you're going too quickly. Um, and then you fill up their bladder you ask them a few key questions you ask them when they start to fill the urine when they feel like they could go to the bathroom but maybe could wait I typically ask you know if they're taking a road trip and they think tell me when they think they probably should stop at the next stop so they start looking but they don't have to pull over um, and then you ask them whenever they have a strong urge to go and when they think their bladder's full, essentially. So that would be, they would pull over on the side of the road. They can't hold anymore. They just <laughs> be in front of God and everybody, okay? Um, and that is, you know, you ask that. You get their maximum capacity. If you can fill it up anymore, you can <laughs> you can try, but... With this, we typically don't go hundreds of cc's, usually around 250 to 300, because we're really asking the question, do they have an adequate capacity, and do they leak with just a simple systemetrics. (laughs) Um, So after the bladder's full, you remove the catheter and have them um, cough and bear down and see if they leak. If they don't, you actually stand them up and see if they leak standing. If they can reproduce any of their activities that cause them to leak, you know, many people say, "Well, every time I squat, I leak." So then, have them squat and see if they leak. Um, simple things like that. And if you can demonstrate it, then you, know, you have your answer, and you can comfortably move forward with a more invasive okay
0: intervention. That's great. That sounds very simple and something that's re- reproducible. So I like that. When, at what point would you pee in front of God and everyone? <laughs> so, and then um, now what about a procedure? Tell us a little bit about, like, in a patient that, that ha- demonstrates incontinence, um, give me a little bit of information about, like, choosing to do a sling and who's a candidate and should we be doing these things. Sure. Uh, for stress incontinence, that's the first thing to
1: really make clear to the patients there's a number of different kinds of urinary incontinence not all of them are treated initially with procedures great so that's why it's important to differentiate between the types so if someone has proven stress incontinence and they're thinking of an intervention some of the options um short of surgery we've already talked about physical therapy there are pessaries that are designed specifically for urinary incontinence okay that are available for these ladies if they're really wanting more of a procedure then you have options such as urethral bulking which is essentially injecting material into the urethra to plump it up um and then the other option that is common is a sling procedure which (laughs) there's a lot of controversy with the mesh and everything so it is a uh, a common conversation we have with our patients but the reality is a sling procedure is one of the more effective things that we can do for these ladies um, with not typically not a lot of morbidity when done properly in the selected
0: patients. Okay, so the success so. rate of a sling, if you had to guesstimate, to how many people would have success if they have pure stress incontinence and they chose that procedure? If they have pure stress
1: incontinence, you know, I never give anyone a 100% success rate. I, I tend to tell my patients that about two-thirds of them will likely be dry or close to dry. The majority of people, eighty-five to ninety percent, will be improved. Okay. So it's still not a hundred percent. It's very similar, actually, to the counseling people give people with endometrial um, ablations, as far as improved resolved or not improved at all okay i like the
0: correlation excellent and what about bulking agents if someone was looking to avoid mesh you know the (laughs) tbs scared them what's the the success rate of that well
1: (laughs) bulking agents is still a synthetic material so you need to make that clear good and it also is something that cannot be removed so that is also very important the advantage of a bulking agent is it can be done in clinic so if the patient is not a good surgery candidate it's still an intervention that can be done um, the success rates are not as good as slings typically um, they're closer to the 60th percent will show improvement maybe a little bit higher okay. kind of depends on the, a lot of the experience and expertise of the person doing it, really okay. because there is there is definitely a learning curve for these. Um, and you know, we, a lot of people tend to go a little bit slow, so you have to tell them that they may need a second injection. Um, you also have to counsel them that they may have difficulty peeing, at least in the short term. And so um, it's not uncommon to teach them to
0: self cath themselves okay. in that event. Um, your urethra um, can get too bulky. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's really great. That's a lot of good information and, and helps us know if I refer a patient some of the options that they're going to get. So let's switch gears. You talked about different types of incontinence. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about urge incontinence. I feel like I don't see this nearly as often and I'm not sure if that's that it's less common or I'm not uh, asking the right questions. Is it less common and tell me a little bit about your uh, urge incontinence.
1: Urge incontinence, um, you know, the overall prevalence estimates in the literature are in the neighborhood of 13%. Many of the urinary incontinence estimates are kind of lumped in together, all urinary incontinence. Okay. That's kind of one of the more common numbers that you see, so it's really not that uncommon. It is, like stress incontinence, something that people just don't want to talk about. It can be more bothersome than stress incontinence because it's more unpredictable. Okay. And the volumes are typically much larger. So these are the people who need to wear diapers. These are the people who carry around a spare change of clothes with them because they just can't predict it. So as far as an effect on quality of life, the impact can definitely be huge. So it's something that you should... Try to elicit in your history and ask some questions about because it is treatable with often medication. So,
0: okay, you can do so. Practice. Tell me how to do that. How do? what are okay. the questions I need to ask okay. to get this out of my patients? So, ask, other than looking in their bag for the paper, <laughs> right. we <were> <laughs> um, you know, ask them what makes them leak if they're
1: there. If, if they say they do look here, and ask them what makes them leak if they say they, you know just feel the urge to go to the bathroom and just don't make it, then that will hint you at urge incontinence. If they leak every time they put their hands in dirty dishwater or every time they put the key in the doorknob whenever they go to turn it, then you have to start thinking, okay, they have some sort of overactive bladder urge incontinence sort of picture. Um, You also need to really get a good medical history because you can get an bladder presenting with some overactive bladder urgent urge incontinence symptoms. Um, people who struggle with urinary tract infections can have um, different symptoms presenting in this way. People with strokes, people who are smokers with bladder cancer, you know, that's rare, but if someone has an acute onset of these symptoms and they've never had it before and they're 40-pack years history smokers, you have to at least think about that. Okay, um, that's good. So,
0: yeah. you okay. also talk
1: about... Sorry. Um, behavioral things, like how much caffeine consumption, and are they constipated things that can affect it?
0: Okay. Well, some people just randomly leak, like no precipitating events. Some people do, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when it happens, Mm -hmm. unpredictability, volume, those are going to be my keys. Mm -hmm. And then making sure, like you said, like the patient doesn't have signs or symptoms or history of like a stroke or other neurologic disorders. Mm Okay. Okay. And then how do I test for this? Is this history alone? Okay, so if they give that history, then I'm saying you probably have urgent incontinence. Let's go for treatment. This is not a, you need some special.
1: No, we typically reserve um, any special testing to people who we are concerned about incomplete bladder emptying. Um, because we're concerned about injury to their upper tracts, their kidneys. Because um, if your bladder is too full, your urine can back up into your kidneys and cause kidney damage. People who were really thinking neurogenic bladder, were, um, people who are refractory to the medications and were thinking about the next step that's more invasive. So okay. but you don't need extra testing. Okay. The only thing I would say that you need to do at an initial visit would be check their urine to make sure they're not infected.
0: Okay, so no mm-hmm. post-void residual,
1: no... You, you can. We typically do. Um, there are people who say you don't necessarily need to if all you're going to do is try to start them on medications. Okay. Unless they give a history of intermittent stream, hesitancy, things like that. If it's pretty straightforward, then it's, it's not critical but it's also not a bad idea okay
0: okay so um same question as before is this someone that I can treat in my office do I need to send them you know hey climb those stairs go to the fifth floor see our engineering (laughs) guide
1: absolutely you can um first line treatment for these are conservative treatments physical therapy is an option for these ladies behavioral changes are an option limiting caffeine intake fluid management, um, fluid intake management, I should say, things like that. Um, and then beyond that, it's medications. So your first-line tr- treatments are usually going to be anticholinergics, some of the main names, Vesicare, Ditropan, Detrol, things like that. Um, so you can absolutely start them on these and give them a trial of it and see if it works.
0: Okay. Okay. I have two questions about that. So I give my patients some dead trial. Like I feel mm-hmm. like, man, I'm a good doctor. Okay. Now, how do I pick one? Okay. And I know that there's some that are like longer acting, shorter acting. Right. What do I tell my patient? Take yes. this medicine because it's cheap or side effects. Right. Are there some rules to starting these medicines or just? There, I wouldn't
1: call them rules. Okay. Um, however, there are some guidelines. Okay. So... If I have a patient, for example, that has also fecal incontinence with loose stool, then I'm more likely to start them with Enablix because that's the more constipating of all the anticholinergics. Okay. Um, If they're older and I am worried, like, maybe I I don't want to cause too much cognitive um, impact, all anticholinergics can do that, but Sanctura is one that does not actually cross the blood-brain barrier, so I may start with that. Beyond that, um, honestly, it's either what I have samples of in the sample closet or whatever they can afford. These medicines are very expensive, typically, so the cheaper ones that insurance will usually pay for are ditropan and Detrol, um, which ditropan is not it's usually the shorter acting form that they cover. So uh, you take a stepwise approach. Um, start with what is feasible for them and what makes sense to okay. them based on a lot of times money. Okay. And go from there.
0: And when should they see improvement?
1: I usually give them a couple of weeks to see improvement. Um, you know, people people are different. They you know, But if they haven't seen any improvement within a couple of weeks, then... I say it's time to either increase the dose or try a different medication.
0: Okay. So say I treat my patient with one or two medications Mm -hmm. and um, nothing happens. (laughs) We're not any better. I'm assuming that's a patient I'm going to refer to you or someone who's a specialist. Mm -hmm. And what are you going to do from there? Is there anything else cool or different that you guys do? Yeah, I, um,
1: I would go ahead and refer those people because if nothing else, then... They're just more difficult and they can be very frustrated and they may not want you to just keep trying random medications with them. There is one medication called Myrbetric that is not an anticholinergic that is um, very effective in these ladies, at least it seems to be so far. It's a newer medication. It's only been on a couple of years. Um, And it doesn't have some of the constipating and drying out side effects that anticholinergics have. Um, But it is more expensive because it's newer, and it also can cause trouble with high blood pressure, so you have to be careful with that. Um, Beyond that, then you can do other things. Like At this point, I would probably go ahead and do your dynamics to make sure there's nothing else going on in these ladies who are refractory to multiple medications. Um, And then if... If there's okay, then you can go ahead and do different interventions, such as Botox to the bladder. There's some neuromodulation techniques that can be used um, to help them.
0: Fantastic. Botox. You're speaking my language. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Okay. Um, is there anything else that I should know or that our, our listeners should know about evaluation and treatment of incontinence? Any other pearls? Um. Don't forget the overflow continent success
1: because sometimes people leak
0: because they're not emptying.
1: So that it goes back to why it's a good idea to get a PVR on these ladies okay. or a post void residual. Um, again, it's not absolutely necessary in all situations, but in especially in a situation where someone maybe isn't responding to anticholinergics, check and make sure it's not that their bladder's just full. Um, and then going back to the common corrobor- Comorbidities. Make sure that you optimize their diabetes control. If they're obese, have them lose weight. There's a number of studies that demonstrate that even eight to ten percent weight loss will actually resolve urinary incontinence symptoms, if not, or at least significantly improve them. Um, Make sure you set goals with them. Um, Voiding diaries are actually a really good idea. They kind of serve the provider. A way to kind of see what avoiding voiding habits are and are they consuming a lot of um, uh, liquids or are they just producing a lot of urine. But it also helps serve as a reality check to patients and when they have to log their um, voiding habits and their leakage episodes, um, especially before, if they do it before you initiate treatment compared to afterwards they may not think they've had much of an improvement but if they can actually see on paper that they have it's a little bit easier for them to um kind of stick with treatment so that's a good idea usually
0: that's awesome Um, so they're writing down like what they're drinking when they went to the bathroom Mm -hmm. when they leaked and then maybe some volume amounts exactly perfect i like that And they also, you know, you always have to
1: remember other medications. If they're on diuretics and they take their Lasix at night and their problem is they're up all night, then maybe they should adjust uh, when they take that. A lot of the psychiatric medications also cause a lot of trouble with um, your bladder. So, you know, I wouldn't expect... In way and necessarily to be fiddling with antipsychotics, but it's something to think about. Maybe communicate with their provider who does for, provide those to see if there's any other options. So
0: those are awesome. Um, those were many things I hadn't thought about, mm-hmm. and I like giving your patient like a goal of mm-hmm. a motivation, like, "Hey, I mean, just like we tell people, ten percent weight loss can improve ovulation mm-hmm. by you know fifty percent." Mm-hmm. Like to say to someone, "Hey, you lose eight to ten percent, and you may not leak urine," is really and motivating. Exactly, yeah. So. Well, thank you so much. I learned a lot. I know our listeners are going to learn a lot. So um, that's all we have for you on the podcast today. If you would like a copy of this podcast, uh transcript, transcript, or if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's K-A-T-I-E dash S-M-I-T-H at ouhsc.edu. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We look forward to bringing you more podcasts in the future from the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center, Department of OBGYN.